0: This morning, as we look at Acts 9, we're going to have several sub verses as we get into it. Um, but we're transitioning now this morning um, to another moment in the early life of Saul, or AKA Paul, or one of the other two names he would have had. We saw last week this miraculous but ordinary conversion of a man named Sp- Saul. On the road to Damascus through this miraculous moment in which Christ revealed himself to him. But we also saw an ordinary moment where a guy named Ananias delivers the news of prayer and just what God had in store and prayed over him and he was baptized. And then it said right after him being baptized that he took food and he was strengthened. It's because he had not ate for three days. So Paul has now eaten food and has been strengthened. And this is where the scripture picks up. And it says this, starting in verse 19. Verse 19, the latter part in verse in part B, it says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road that he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had (laughs) preached boldly the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among the Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being, being built up in walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let us pray. Father, this is your word. My prayer would be that we would see this as much more than a history lesson in the life of Saul and the disciples and Barnabas. God, we would see it as more of a history lesson than what happened in Damascus and Jerusalem and the Judean area, but Father, we would see this as an inspired word from you, declaring what you had done in your church very early on, and from that we would see some principles that you would love to see in, or in influence the way in which we now, as your believers, your people, live our lives and respond in our churches. We love you and we thank you, in your Son's holy name, amen. This morning, Micah leading worship was not planned, but rather was a byproduct of some unforeseen circumstances, and he did a wonderful job, especially considering the fact that he found out about 8.45 this morning. Uh, In all of those things, though, he sang this song that I don't know if we've ever done, uh, but I remember listening to it often um, early in my walk with Christ, and it's that song, Build Your Kingdom, by Wren Collective. And in that song, it's declaring in this really this heart of God building His kingdom here and now, much like the prayer that He inspired and told His disciples to pray that Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in heaven and on earth as it is as earth, in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. That God would build His kingdom here and now. It's this prayer, this dependence upon God doing that. And in that song, it declares this, this reality of the church being the, the means in which God is building his kingdom. And that's exactly kind of what we're looking at this morning. Though we're going to look specifically at a man that I'm going to commonly call Paul, even though we know his name is Saul at this point. And as you're going to see on the screen, we're going to see even his name is Paul there, right? But the reality of all of this is that what we're going to see is that the Holy Spirit was actively using Paul and the church to make Christ known and to make disciples of his. Simply that Paul, that God, through the Spirit, was empowering Paul and his church to make converts and disciples. But not separating those two things, just separating them for our knowledge but the reality of what we're also going to see is someone that comes to know Christ is not only someone that comes to know Christ in word, but someone that comes to know Christ in deed. So in all of that, I'm going to just touch very, very quickly because we're going to come back to it in verse 31. In verse 31, we see this phrase, this this verse it says so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Galilee and Samaria and the peace was being built up in walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied the reason why i'm reading that now just to kind of give us what's going on here is that back in acts chapter 6 acts chapter 6 verse 7 we see this transition in the life, in the, the uh, historical account of Luke. if Luke was taking his attention away from Jerusalem, away from Peter, away from John, and he was moving it to outside of Jerusalem to other participants, per se. And he was moving that to Philip, and then we saw, we saw Stephen, and then we saw Philip, and now we see Paul. And now this this section is being ended this morning's text. And then we're going to pick back up on the life of Peter at the end of chapter 9 going on into chapter 12. And so this is an ending moment because I believe he's building the stage of what God was doing big picture in the life of the church in all of the places of the Gentiles in a man that would be known as Paul later on. So he's laying this foundational work of this man named Saul doing this this work. But I want us to pay attention very closely to some things that are going on in the life of Paul. Because I believe there's some pretty clear principles that we can take from this. And my prayer would be that just as I read, very opening of this service, is that this would be a time that we can rest in Christ but I do pray that for myself and for others in the room, for all of us really, that this would also cause some deep conviction in some areas in which we are probably lacking. And so, all that being in mind, let's look at verse 19. It says, "For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus." This is a transitional face, phrase. <laughs> He says in the beginning of verse 19, 19, he taking food and he was strengthened. And then it goes on and it says, for in some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So everything that's about to follow until you get to verse 23 is what's occurring in these immediate days. These days, right after Paul was converted to Christianity, right after this miraculous moment in which he encountered the risen Savior and this normal day moment where this individual comes to him and prays over him and he is baptized and initiated into the church. But what occurs, I think, is so important. And you'll see it on the screen whenever it's not on Scripture is that he immediately proclaimed Christ. Look at the phrase here in 20. It says, and I'm just taking the terminology that is in scripture there. It says, as and he he immediately and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. So Paul is a man, or Saul is in Damascus after he has encountered Christ, but why was he going to Damascus in the first place? You can answer this one. It's not rhetorical. Why was he going to Damascus in the first place? Not a trick question. Yes. That Paul's, Saul's goal in going to Damascus was to take Christians out of the synagogues and out of the home churches and take them back to Jerusalem. And to persecute person, to either arrest them, kill them, or whatever in between. But what is this man doing now? After he has encountered a risen Savior that called him to himself and called him for a purpose, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. The exact place that he was supposed to go and rip Christians out of, what is he doing? He's proclaiming Jesus there. We don't, this isn't a one-off moment. This isn't something miraculous that Saul did that we don't see in other places. This is the same thing that the woman at the well does when she encounters Christ. She goes back into town and she proclaims Christ. This is the same thing that individuals all throughout the Gospels and the New Testament do after they encounter Jesus. The point I want to make in this, before we get to the rest of the scripture is that this is the goal and this is the calling initially for every believer. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for a day. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for a year or if you've been saved for 15 years. Our calling, first and foremost, is to proclaim Christ. We don't know how long this immediate is speaking to specifically, but I would assume... That it was not a short period. It was not a, quick, a long period of time, but rather a very quick period of time. So Paul is in the synagogues proclaiming Christ. And what is he saying? That he is the Son of God. We're going to get to that in just a second. But look at the response. It says, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all who were called upon this name? And is he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. That confounded means baffled. <clears throat> He baffled those Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So what is Paul doing in this moment? He is proclaiming Jesus, and in proclaiming Jesus, what he's trying to display to them and what his words and his deeds are doing is showing that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Christ Christ. The point being here is that Paul, simply speaking that this is the Jesus, was confusing to these people. Because his goal, his desire in coming to Damascus was to take people that blasphemed God in his eyes by saying that Jesus was God and to take them and arrest them and persecute them and possibly even kill them. But that same man is standing before them. Siding with the enemy, saying that this Jesus is the Son of God. That this Jesus, he was the Christ. We can read this and touch on this, but I don't think we truly understand the confusing nature of this for those Jews in Damascus. See, the reality here is that Jesus transformed Saul on the road to Damascus. And what that led to naturally was an immediate proclamation of Jesus as the Son of God and that he was the Christ. What I want us to take from this very, very plainly is that conversion... Certainly, we are saved and redeemed. It is a work of God, a work of the Spirit. As James tells us, though, that faith without works is dead. And what we see in the life of people transformed by the gospel in the scriptures is that immediately they told people of this wonderful news. And if I'm going to be honest, I look back at my own life so often and I think of encounters where I had an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Even on on everyday occurrences, the the opportunity to proclaim Christ and stand up for the reality and the truth of the gospel. But how quickly I fold. I think if we're going to be honest, we would all find ourselves in very similar circumstances. And I don't say this to bring down a weight upon us to where we can't move forward. But to say it very simply is that people who are transformed by the gospel are people who proclaim the gospel. That those who are saved are not only saved in word, but they're saved in deed. The faith without works is dead. Now certainly this is a mantra that I would say very often and you guys know very well that I'm going to say it now is certainly we're not saved by any works that we do after knowing Christ but knowing Christ transforms us and changes us to the point in which we are changed we're different people it's not as if there's small changes in our lives we're transformed and being transformed we are people that want to proclaim Christ and desire to proclaim Christ so What we see first and foremost, in Paul's conversion, he immediately proclaims Christ. second thing I want us to see, though, is that Paul makes disciples. And I put that parenthesis in quotation simply because we would all know that we are not the change agent of anyone. We are not the only work of discipleship or any of that nature in anybody's life that is a work of God, a work of the Spirit, just like salvation is. But what we see in this moment is that Paul not only comes to know Christ and then not only proclaims the gospel, but we're also going to see this small little phrase in verse 25, which says, but his disciples took him by night. But how is that the case? Well, let's look at it. In verse 23, it says, when many days had passed. Now, this is a terrible Terrible translation for us because it doesn't tell us any details, right? Earlier, it says immediately. And for that, we, we assume, we don't know how many days it is, but we would assume there was a quick period of time, right? But here it says that many days had passed. We have no idea what that many days means. Could it be 60? Could it be 360? Could it be 160? Who knows, right? But the reality here is I think Scripture tells us elsewhere how many days this was. And so this is where we're going to flip a little bit. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at 11 through 18. Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 18, says this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not man's gospel. I'm going to pause here. Galatians, Paul is defending the gospel in which he preached as one that was received by God, from God, not by man. Okay, that's the main point of this section in Galatians. But we get a snippet of the history of Paul here. And that's what I want us to focus on, okay? Verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not talking about his conversion, but talking about a later point. It says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. We're going to pause there. So what Paul is saying here is that after he' come to Christ in salvation on the road to Damascus, he goes to Damascus. He's, we see he's there for a short period of time, as the scripture already told us in Acts, but he doesn't immediately go to Jerusalem consulting with them. But we see something different. Le- keep reading with me. It says, And I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. All right? So he goes to Arabia and he comes back to Damascus. So I returned back to Damascus. So we see this period of time where he's in Damascus for a short period of time. He goes to Arabia and then he comes back to Damascus. The reason why that's going to be important is in just a little bit, we see in, just, in this set of scripture, we see this, in, When many days had passed... The many days had passed was the time period in which he was in Arabia. And then following that, it says the Jews plotted to kill him. That is what happens when he returned back from Damascus. Luke is not given a detailed summary of Paul's life, but rather speaking of the conversion moments in which the Spirit of God was working in his church. Okay, Look at verse 18 in Galatians chapter 1. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So, we don't know exactly how long he was in Damascus and how long he was in Arabia. But what we're going to see in just a moment, when you get to verse 26, in this, in when many days had passed, there's a three year span here. Okay, but even more than that, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 32 through 33. It says that Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So there's a very detailed account here of what happened to Saul. That this king was desiring to kill him. That's what we see here, right? And look at verse... Well, We're going to get to that in a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. No, I'm not. I'm sorry. We're here. It says, They plotted to kill him, but their plot came known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. That in this moment, in this three-year span, something occurred. Something occurred to the extent where this Gentile king is desiring to kill Saul. We don't know what happens. We don't know what occurs in this three-year span from his conversion to this moment in which this king is wanting to kill him. So often we think of this time, and by we I mean theologians and other people that have just contemplated this and actually thought through this, they think of his time in Arabia as almost this retreat where he goes away for three years and it's almost like a meditation retreat where he's taking in information, he's trusting in God, he's growing in Christ, and certainly he's growing in Christ in all of these circumstances. But a man who goes to a retreat to grow more in Scripture, not in action but in knowledge, does not cause a reason for his own death. So Saul is not stopping this moment where he's preaching the gospel, but he's doing it in this area of Damascus and Arabia, and I would argue somewhere in between as well. Why is this important, though? It's because we see this little phrase, but his disciples took him by night. We could skip over that so easily. Because for so long, me personally, I wouldn't have read this as but his disciples, but I would have read it as the disciples. But the reality here is Paul had men, possibly women, that he was pouring into. How long has he been saved at this point? Three years. So what I want us to see in this is there's no magical turning point in which we as we saw in a moment ago, proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ when we come to know Christ. And there's no magical turning point when we begin to make disciples. Because making disciples begins with proclaiming the gospel. And then from there, it is a natural outflow. Because remember what I said earlier, we're not saved only in word, but we're saved in deed. So I would argue what's going on here is that in this three-year span, Though he's in Arabia and Damascus and these areas in between, Saul is proclaiming Christ. People are coming to know Christ. And he's teaching them how to follow Christ. Why is that important? That's important because arguably half of the room was never truly discipled by someone. And the other half in the room probably really didn't receive discipleship over until the last three or four years. And then if we're going to be completely transparent here, many of us are not actively making disciples in our own lives. And if I pulled the room, I think what we would determine is that Tanaya would be the most recent person that was saved And that's coming on two years now. As I said earlier, this is not a beating down session. But this is a session for us to see the importance of proclaiming Christ and making disciples. And in just a little bit, we're going to see that it's not all of our efforts, but the efforts of the Spirit. But in those two things, what I want us to see very, very clearly is that if you have come to know Christ... It is your job to proclaim Christ and make disciples. Let's keep going in the text. This is where we get a little different in the concept and the structure here. And honestly, would probably be better to separate the first two and these latter two into uh, two separate sermons. But um, I desire to preach it all in one. So we see this moment in which Paul, Saul, goes back to Jerusalem, and we see another principle, though, but not in the life of Saul. Let's look at it together. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. They did not believe he was a disciple. All right, I'm going to pause there, because what I'm going to be transparent about here in this moment is, in my mind, I have never pieced together the reality of this being a three-year span. In my mind, this was a moment in which Saul was converted. He stays in Damascus for a little bit of time, and then he goes back to Jerusalem. And in going back to Jerusalem, it would make perfect sense that these disciples would be reluctant to receive him. Because you're talking about a short period of time that this guy named Saul is coming back, seeing that he is a disciple of Jesus. Almost as if he would be changing his tactic in ways of persecuting the church. Um. Many times in the last two or three weeks, I've started listening to this podcast called The Voice of the Martyrs. I've sent it to you guys. And just listening to some different stories and then the historical moments in the church's life, it is not uncommon that the enemy would pretend to be one of us so that he could take the people into persecution. What I mean by that is, for example, the KJB... I, no, not KJB. Yeah, anyway, there was a, a group of people... That the way of them stopping the church from growing was for them to have an undercover agent that would become part of the church so that they could bring persecution of the church. And we still see this same tactic today. So the disciples are responding naturally. But what does baffle me personally is the fact that there's been a three year span here. And certainly they would have known about this because it just got word to them not too many verses ago that, that after Philip went to Samaria, the gospel was being made known. So why was Peter and John not aware of this? And why are they so shocked at this? We don't know. But what we do know is for whatever reasons, they reject Saul. Until, look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord, and he spoke to him. And how Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We don't know how Barnabas knows this. Scripture does not tell us. But what we do know is that in just a few chapters, I believe it's in thirteen. Yes, thirteen verses, one through uh, thirteen four. This is so. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia. And from there, the city called Cyprus. But who is being sent out? Verse 1. Now there was a church in Antioch, prophets and teachers, and Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, Sinia, Mania, and lifelong friend of Herod, a tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which they are called, have called them to. We don't know how Paul met Barnabas, but what we do know is that Barnabas is the first one Paul is commissioned with. But what else do we know about Barnabas? We'll flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who was also called the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So a, an apostle whose name was essentially changed to Barnabas. Why? Because it was a nickname meaning son of encouragement. The son of encouragement stands up on the behalf of Saul to the apostles, to the disciples. Man, that's, that's good for us there. The reason why that's good for us there is because what we see in this is not only do we see this moment in which Paul is proclaiming Christ, not only do we see this moment in which Paul is making disciples, but we see this moment in which the rejection of Paul from the apostles This guy named Barnabas is by his side, encouraging him, vouching for him, being the reference on his resume, saying, look, this guy is legit. This is what he has done for the cause. I can't say this. This is where I'm going to step away from Scripture and I'm going to say this in a different tone, okay? I would not be shocked to find out one day if we find out things like this in heaven that Barnabas played a part in discipling Saul. If nothing else, he was a son of encouragement to Saul in Jerusalem, but possibly even in Damascus because they had to have encountered each other somewhere. This is where I'm going to take liberty and take it as a stretch here and say not only are we called to proclaim Christ, not only are we called to make disciples, but we need people in our lives that are going to encourage us and build us up and make us disciples, to disciple us. I've said this from this table. I'm not going to call it a pulpit because it's certainly not one time before and time again as you seek to make disciples you need someone discipling you and what scripture would tell us is that we need older men pouring into younger men and older women pouring into younger women and if you look at me I may seem older than you guys by a lot I don't know if I do or not I really don't know but I'm 30 I'm not an old man you need people pouring into you that have lived life and done things. I have a guy, most of you, some of you, all of you, really, except for maybe one, um, have either heard this name or know this guy, but I have a, a gentleman named Jeff that pulls into me in a lot of ways. It has been since December of 2020, I guess. What was this, 22? 21? Yeah, December of 2020. In ways that he didn't know of in the beginning and certainly ways he knows of now. Um, it's not a very formal discipleship process, but it's certainly an encouragement. And it's one where he pushes me towards uh, meditation and Bible memory and things of the such. That's vital for me. It's vital for all of us to have someone pouring into us. I'm not saying that men and women in this room can't serve as that in function But sometimes, often, we need older men that are going to do that and older women that are going to do that for us. But let's keep going in the text so we can understand the history here. So he went on in and out among that at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, and they were seeking to kill him. So it says, so he went in and out among among them at Jerusalem. We don't know if this is in that 15-day span in which it said that he consulted him with uh, Peter. Uh, but I would argue that's a different moment in history. But what we see here is he's going in and out of Jerusalem, proclaiming Christ. And look at what happens. And, and what I want to point out in verse 29 is, and even what we've already seen in the life of Saul, this is Saul living out the reality in which God told Ananias about his life. That he would be known and he would know what it's like to be persecuted and to give up his life for his name's sake. okay? So verse 29, it says, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Why is that important, though? Look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Acts chapter 6, verse 9 says this. That some of those who belonged to the synagogue, at the freedom freedmen, as it was called, uh, the uh, Syrians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia in Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. They disputed with Stephen. Now, why is all of these names significant? It's because these are Greek places with Greek-speaking Jews that were standing up and disputing against Stephen. Then in chapter 8... We see the moment well, right before chapter eight, last part of seven and first part of eight. We see Stephen's death, and we see these Greek-speaking Jews laying their cloaks down at the feet of Saul from Jerusalem. The reason why that's important is we can't show that this are the same people. But it's the same sect of people that now now disputing against Saul. But guess what, though, the phrase is different here. The previous one says that the Hellenists essentially—it's just a different translation. There, the Hellenists was disputing with him. But what does Paul say? What does I mean, Luke say about Paul? And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. It wasn't the opposite way around. The Hellenists didn't come to Saul disputing with him. Saul went to them. He went to the group of people that he was a part of and began to proclaim the Christ, the risen one, to them. He was trying to convince them as he was convinced on the road to Damascus that this is truly the Messiah. The one that killed Stephen over was the one that has truly come to redeem and save his people. That he was the one that was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and all of the other scriptures. Paul went back to his his stomping grounds per se. To the crew that he used to hang out with. That he used to do the things with and try to proclaim the gospel to them and what it did was it made them mad and they desired to kill him just like they killed Stephen. Now the persecutor has officially turned into the persecuted one. Not just by this random king but from the people that he used to run with. And so, verse 30, it says the brothers learned of this, most likely talking of the other believers in Jerusalem, possibly even the disciples. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, most likely, I would assume, uh, Philip's in Caesarea, so maybe he's playing a part here in, in the sending off of Saul to Tarsus. God was obviously working in this moment. God was sending Saul exactly where he wanted Saul to be. But he goes back home. He goes to a familiar ground. He goes back to where people would know him as Paul. Or more specifically as Paulus. Because he would now be at home where his nickname would mean much more. But look at the last part here. This is the last point I want to make. And it's very simply that peace, growth, and comfort by the Holy Spirit. See, so what we've looked at in these three realities so far is Paul immediately preached Christ or proclaimed Christ. Paul makes disciples. Barnabas is encouragement to Paul and the rejection of the apostles. But we would be ignorant to not know that this is truly a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Saul, and the church. Let's look at this verse a little more detailed than we did previously. It so, says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace It was being built up. I'm going to pause and I'm going to look at this word church here for just a second. I'm not going to tell you the Greek word or none of that. But this Greek word is different than almost anywhere else the word church is used in the New Testament. And what's different about it is other Greek words would talk about specific locations in which the, church, the body of believers would be gathered. Much like this is a church. And then if you go down the road, there's a church. And you go down the road, there's another church and another church, right? But the word church here is more like a big C Catholic or a more of a universal church. Speaking of all of the churches in Judea, and Galilee, and Samaria. That there was a peace and there was comfort and there was growth in the church overall in these regions. What I mean by this is, they had peace; they were being built up, so they were going spiritually. But then you look at the last part of thirty-one. It says it was, it was multiplied, so they were they were growing numerically. And then it says, and they were walking in the fear of the Lord. So they were walking in the fear of the Lord. So they were not fearing Saul anymore or the persecutor anymore, but they were fearing God over man. And in that they found comfort of the Holy Spirit. Why is that significant? Why is Luke ending this entire section with that phrase? And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because what does Christ promise to his people? That it's better for him to leave so that the comforter would come to them. See, the reality here is we can look and we can see Paul proclaiming, we can see Paul making, and we can see Barnabas encouraging. But the Spirit of God is doing the work in the hearts of men and women to save, to grow, to develop, to cause peace, to cause comfort. God was doing a work that only God could do And what I want to say to that before we transition to our last song together is very simply we are called. Like there's no dancing around this. We are called, no matter of our desire to speak to people, no matter our willingness or ability. No matter our growth, no matter our understanding, as people that have been redeemed by Christ, we are called to proclaim the gospel. And if you know the gospel well enough to believe in Jesus and trust in him and be redeemed and saved, then you should know the gospel well enough to tell others about it. We're called to be that. We're called to proclaim We're called to make disciples. We're called to to help individuals grow in the knowledge and the truth and the principles of knowing Jesus. We're called to these things. We need people around us to encourage and to build us up and to guide us and to help us even in our own spiritual growth. But if we do a single bit of that, without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it will be meaningless. You can pick up your Bible and you can read it every day of your life. And I have confidence that God's going to speak to you through His Word. But if you do it passively, unintentionally, undesirably, if you proclaim the gospel unenthusiastically, If you aren't committed to making disciples, if you're not trusting that God is going to do something in all of this, in all of these circumstances. If you're not leaning into the spirit to guide and to direct and to empower you to accomplish these things. If we as a church seek to grow a church without prayer and commitment and dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Then it will never grow. We will never grow. And we will never see a single soul baptized or grow spiritually to the point of where it matters. We can do all the right things. We can check all the right boxes. But unless we live reliant, trusting, depending in the work of God through the Spirit of God, through the salvation of Christ and through the sovereignty of the Father... then we could quit now and the impact would be no different. But I don't think that's what any of us desire. So the encouragement, the rest that we can find as Micah comes and we're going to sing this song together is very simply, let's flip the scripts here. If you're here and you may be convicted over the lack of proclamation of the gospel, the lack of making disciples, the lack of being poured into... My encouragement to you as we sing this last song together, that you would take a very serious reflection of your life and you would pray to God that God, through the Spirit of God, would provide an opportunity for someone to pour into you, for someone to be able to pour the gospel out to, and for someone for you to pour into. That you would trust in God to provide these things for you, and then you would seek out someone. You would pray for someone to teach you. You would pray for someone to share the gospel with that one individual, that two individuals that does not know Jesus and you know they don't. You would pray for an opportunity. If that freaks you out and scares you, you would seek someone to teach you how to do that. That you would be prepared and equipped to make disciples of those who come into your life. Very simply put, my prayer for us right now is that we would find our dependence upon the Spirit to lead, guide, and direct us in all these other three ways. But that does not remove the importance of us actually physically doing something. There's a balance between faith and work. Let's have faith in the Spirit to guide, and let's do the physical work that it takes to get there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray now that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. God, that you would be glorified in the singing of this song together. And God, that your people would be strengthened by your good news of the gospel. And that your people would be strengthened in the reality that your spirit is working actively in our lives and the lives of those around us. We love you and we praise you in your son's holy name. Amen.